0: Chapter 17 of Mabel Ross, The Sewing Girl. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 The Strike. It was a day or two later, and the sewing women and girls in Steen's employ were collected at the place of their labors. All had come punctually to the hour, not a few in advance of it. A different appearance from the usual might have been observed about each and all of these poor women to day. For once, the look of stolid indifference, that outward sign of crushed hopes and exhausted energies common with most of them, had given place to a something like expression of feeling. Some countenances wore a look of determination and strength, others of anxiety and weakness, even of fear. Some eyes flashed brightly and hopefully, others drooped despondently, a few even tearfully. No bonnets or hats were taken off. None divested themselves of the outside covering they wore. But leaving untouched the machines, which were generally the first objects of interest, they gathered together in a group, conversing in low tones, and apparently awaiting the coming of someone, for many were the glances cast in direction of the inner door. That someone came at last. It was the foreman, a person considerably younger than Steen himself, but one in his own way, not less unprepossessing in his appearance. The moment he appeared, Debbie walked up to him. Mr. Levi, she said, we shall work no longer for Mr. Steen at his present wages. The winter is coming on, and the price of everything rising with every day. And unless Mr. Steen allows us better wages, something we can live by, every woman and girl employed in this room will leave at once, and never come back to him. Mr. Levi stared at her, then ran his eye over the group standing, all attention, a little way off. His countenance expressed slight surprise, nothing more. "'He will find plenty of others to come,' he then said, bringing up once more with his eyes upon Debbie. "'You know that, Debbie Curtis?' "'Plenty may come and plenty may go, too,' rejoined Debbie, with concentrated feeling and his busy time may be ruined by it. I'll engage, he'll find no others to stay as we have done. Some of these, glancing round at her companions, have been working for him these two years. I myself have been taking his niggardly pay for nearly fourteen months, and Peggy Bonner and Roxy Billings would have been with him two years and four months this day if if he hadn't frozen them up. None of the rest of us want to be frozen to death by him, nor to die in any other way by his hands. We want to live, and to live by our work. While we spend every minute of ten hours a day for him, he owes us a living, and has got to give it to us. All we want with you is to tell him so, and to tell him just as you heard it.' "'Certainly I will tell him,' was the reply.' in the same unimpassioned tone as before. It is not very difficult to do that. And the undemonstrative foreman quietly left the room. For a moment after his departure, not a word was spoken by the women. Then Debbie suddenly broke the silence to say, Margaret Klein, move back. I can stand alone at this work. Now, Margaret Klein was the woman who had volunteered to stand second to Debbie, and for whose reappearance at her place of labor the strike had, for some time, been postponed. "'What's the trouble?' she asked, in a voice that she vainly strove to steady. "'Ain't I ready to do all I promised?' "'No, for you can't do it,' rejoined Debbie. "'Poor girl, this sitting up with your mother's been too much for you. You're sick yourself today.' Margaret put her hands over her eyes and silently wept. Debbie Curtis was right. She was sick. Not only sick, but hungry. For the time lost through nursing her mother had given opportunity for starvation to enter the house. She had no heart for the strike today. I haven't been nursing or sitting up with anyone, said Hilda, pushing forward to Debbie's side. And just what I'd like is to stand by you, Debbie Curtis. Shall I? Debbie's only reply was to press the hand which Hilda, while speaking, had slipped into her own, for at that moment Steen himself appeared in the room, followed by his passive foreman. Approaching the two girls, Debbie and Hilda, who stood somewhat in advance of the others, he said What is this my foreman tells me, Debbie Curtis? You ask for higher wages? With great self-command, Debbie repeated what she had said to the foreman, and nearly as possible in the same words. If the allusion to the melancholy fate of Peggy and Roxy touched the man in any way, he gave no intimation of it, but passed it over in silence. I do business for twelve year in Chicago, he said with an ugly scowl, and dis is de first time a thing like dis happen, and it is for me to make one example of it. I know right well how to start. I know that it is one, two, maybe three girl, that is dissatisfy, and they work up the rest to help on the trouble. But it will do no good, but only harm. My price is fair price, and plenty will work for it. Never will I choose to have any work for me, but that is satisfy. Satisfied? exclaimed Hilda her temper rising upon this cool retort of her employer. Where will you find a girl satisfied with wages not fit for a dog? Were poor Peggy and Roxy satisfied? Did the miserable way those poor girls died speak up for your fair prices? Then, suddenly getting her temper again under command, in a changed tone she added, Mr. Steen, We ask for justice and fairness, nothing more. We are sewing women, and sewing women are expected to live by their work. Now, we have one and all found we cannot live on what you pay us, so beg you to do better by us.' that you may be quite satisfied of the truth of what we say, we have made up a list of a poor girl's necessary expenses, absolutely necessary ones only, you understand, and have brought it to you, signed by all these girls and women present. If you would only take a look at it, you would see how far it goes beyond the weekly wages you pay us. As she concluded these words, Hilda took a paper from the hand of Debbie and offered it to their employer. Surprise only had so long kept the man silent. Surprise at the prompt and determined address of a girl who was not only the youngest present, but so much of a stranger in his employ. But his anger, if for a while held back, was not the less positive when it asserted itself. "'I not look at it!' he cried, impatiently waving aside the paper." I have nothing to do with expenses you choose to have. I simply want to pay fair price, and I do pay fair price, and so it is to stand. If you all have made up your mind to go, if there is nothing better for staying, then go, if there is nothing better for staying. I have but one thing to do myself, and that is to pay a fair price. Mr. Steen... Here, resolutely put in Hilda, "'If you really wish to pay fair prices, why not look over the paper? You will find that with boots at two seventy-five and calico thirty-five cents a yard—' "'That is none of my business!' irately interrupted Steen. "'My business is only to pay fair prices, and it is your business to make the fair price cover the expense of living.' Plenty of women in Chicago willing to work for me, and that is proof my price is fair price. It is proof that Chicago is filled with hard, cruel men like yourself, retorted Debbie, her eyes flashing with indignation in the very face of the person she addressed. Men that grind down poor sewing women in their employ to the last farthing— and the bitter struggle these poor women have to live is proof that God's anger will some time be wreaked upon you all. That is enough, coolly returned Steen. I don't choose more. You can all go right this minute. But I tell you, you'll be coming back again, asking to do my work, every one of you. But there is dat two shall never get work when they come back, no, not if they starve. And is Debbie Curtis and Hilda Ross. Those two shall never show themselves here again. Having delivered himself of these words, giving particular emphasis to the prohibition upon Debbie and Hilda, Steen left the sewing-room, followed, as when he had entered it, by the foreman. The women and girls hung together for a while, whispering their indignation, their disappointment, and their anxieties, then quietly passed downstairs and out of the store, seeing nothing further of either of the men. "'It's ended in nothing,' said Debbie, soon as she and Hilda were together in the street. "'Yet I'd do it again, sure of its ending just the same. There's not a bit of spirit taken out of me. Is there out of you, Hilda Ross?' "'No,' was the reply." in a more assured tone than her companion had probably looked for, for Debbie had noticed a look of grave concern upon the countenance of Hilda. I feel we've done right, come what may of it. The worst that can come of it is two of us being without a place for a while, rejoined Debbie, but, to be sure, that would be a big matter to many. She paused and looked gravely into the face of Hilda. Maybe it's a big matter to you she said. "'It is,' replied Hilda, choking down a sob. "'It's a great matter, because of my poor little sister, who is helpless as a baby through a hurt from a fall, and of my good elder sister, who has such a hard time to make both ends meet for us all. I feel my heart sink at the thought of going home to say I have lost my place at Steen's. "'Poor girl!' Oh, I don't know that I can altogether say I would do it again if it was undone. You blame me, Hilda Ross, in your heart you do. You must blame me. I blame no living being but Steen, replied Hilda. In reason, there's no one else to blame. That's all I ask, rejoined Debbie. Keep up your spirits, Hilda, child, and the bright day may come for us at last. A strike among sewing hands is a new thing in Chicago, and when Steen comes to think of it, and some others to hear of it, good may grow out of it, all the good we looked for. They, soon after this, arrived at the parting place. Go to your sisters with as light a heart as you can, then said Debbie, for I shall try and do something for you. If the rest are driven to go back to Steen, he will take them, and it can't be at lower wages than they've been getting." so they're no worse off than before. I'll use my time in hunting up work for us both, and I promise you, if I get but one place, you shall have it. I can better afford to lose time than you, Hilda Ross, so you shall have work first. Hilda pressed in silence, the hand extended her, then hurried homeward. The first sound that greeted her upon entering the room was the moaning of little Lily. The poor child was laboring under one of those paroxysms of pain from which she had latterly been almost exempt, and though the soothing morphine had already been administered by Mabel, her suffering was acute. Sad was it to see the pale face with its wan and pinched features distorted with pain, and to hear the feeble voice raised in bitter wailing. Mabel hung over the pillow of the little sufferer, soothing the best she could with kind words, while the tears which coursed over her cheeks told all she was suffering at the sight of the little one's agony. Every look and every moan of the child came like a reproach to Hilda, and she shrunk away to herself with feelings of wretchedness and self-condemnation. She had gone from home that morning, her heart filled with hope of bringing cheering tidings on her return— She had figured to herself Steen succumbing to a necessity forced upon him, and raising the wages of his hands to the really fair price that he affected to believe he paid. But alas, it was the reverse of this picture that was before her. The strike was a failure, and she had lost the place which, after several days' search, was the only one attainable, and the small pay of which was, at least, better than nothing. She dreaded to tell Mabel— Poor Mabel, already distressed at this bad turn of little Lily's, yet was impatient to have it told and to know what her sister would say. Hilda was not one to shield herself under false representations, and when the moment for the disclosure came, Mabel received the story without an attempt upon the narrator to make the part she had herself taken in it appear any better than it was." Mabel was grieved, but seeing Hilda's distress, said little as she could to add to it. "'I hope your new friend will succeed in finding you a place,' she observed. "'But, for the present, I am not sorry to have you home to help with poor little Lily. Poor child! These dreadful spells of pain take all my attention, yet it is absolutely necessary I make progress with my work.' If I understood vest-making, or if I wasn't so stupid about learning things, said Hilda, I could do well by staying at home, for I might be basting and making buttonholes while you were at the machine. But you don't understand it, replied her sister, so something else must be found for you. Hilda repeated the encouragement held out to her by Debbie Curtis. She is a good, kind girl, she said and will act up to her word with me. She's been at the sewing business for years and understands a good deal more than I do about hunting up work, so I can safely leave it to her and stay at home to help you with dear Lily. End of chapter 17